All right, everybody, on today's Impactful Writing Podcast, Wonder Woman 1984, a story breakdown of DC of the DCEU's latest blockbuster. Uh, my name is Jay Shear. I am the co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter here in front of me um, and the Amazon top seller Time Slingers, which is actually on the wall behind me here um, as well. And joining me today, as always, is the co-writer of the Mongolian Connection, numerous comic books and some pros as well, Caleb Monroe. Happy New Year, Caleb. How are you? Happy 2021. I'm doing pretty well. I arrived in London yesterday, which is why we're recording at a different time than we previously did and why it's dark here. And I enjoy London and am looking forward to the time I'll be spending here. And I had some great holidays. So I would say doing well. How about you? You know what? I cannot complain. Um, the holidays were just basically my wife and I sitting in our house. Uh, but that was kind of a nice change of pace to a certain extent. I am kind of tired of being in my house, but uh, uh, I did some research and my wife is sort of on in, in the probably vulnerable area to, to COVID-19. So we just stay pretty locked up. And for me to be able to do podcasts like this are super fun. So I'm looking forward to, to doing this. We, we, uh, of course, watch Wonder Woman 1984. I think we watched it the day after it came out. Um, I think we watched Soul on Christmas and then this the day after Christmas. Um, but it's going to be really fun to talk about it. And it is fun to talk to somebody yeah. across the Did <laughs> across you watch the it? ocean. Did you watch it streaming or in the theater? Oh, streaming. There's no theaters open here. <laughs> All the theaters are completely closed here. Yeah, I remember when Tenet came out, we drove two and a half hours to get to a theater to see it on the big screen. Whoa. Yeah, um, we had uh, the, the Story Geeks co-host, uh, Daryl Smith, for his birthday, rented out an entire theater for Tenet. And we saw it, we were able to see it at the local theater, but he had to rent out the entire theater just for us. To, there was like 10 of us in this giant theater. That's fantastic. I did go see Wonder Woman on the big screen. i trying, whenever possible, to give money to theaters because I want them to still exist a year or two from now, which it, mm. there's a strong chance they won't. So... Uh, I, I made an effort to go see both Monster Hunter and Wonder Woman on the big screen uh, for that reason. Oh, and, buy, and buy food and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Uh, I wish uh, yeah, I wish we could do that. I am, uh, I'm actually not as big of a fan of theaters as I am being able to watch it at home because I like to watch a movie without any distractions. And my house is actually less distracting because I can always pause it <laughs> um, and use subtitles. But I will say that there is the theater experience is something you cannot replicate at home so i agree with you i do not want theaters to close want theaters to keep moving um and i think that they will because there will always be a demand for it but we may see the marketplace shrink a bit so hopefully um if you're out there in that marketplace you will survive this uh economy and we'll get through it we'll get all i'll get through it together um before we jump into uh, Wonder Woman 1984, as a reminder, the Impactful Writing Podcast is now a show under the Story Geeks banner, which means you can join us live on the Fantasy Storytelling channel, which people are doing now, uh, or on Facebook, um, as we record. Or you can listen later on the Story Geeks podcast feed. Of course, if you listen to us on the podcast feed, you don't get a chance to interact with us in the comments. So if you want to interact with us in the comments and ask questions and ask our opinion, then every other Monday at 9 30 a.m pacific time because caleb what time is it for you <laughs> it is 5 30 p.m 5 30 if you're on the other side of the world and you're in uh you're in the uk then it is 5 30 uh when we'll be when we will be live 
Um, and all of our shows, both the Fantasy Storytelling YouTube and the Story Geeks channel, all of our shows are produced by the Reclamation Society. So, Caleb, let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's jump into Wonder Woman 1984. Now, I always like to start with a question that gets at some of our opinions because we're not an opinion podcast. There's a billion opinion podcasts. You can go listen to a bunch of different opinions on uh, on what people thought of Wonder Woman 1984. But just so that we are able to articulate some of the things that we really like about the DCEU, I wanted to, um, to dive into this question about, um, you know, just like the rest of the DCEU, this film has been controversial. Almost every film in the DCEU has been controversial to some extent. Um, far more controversial than, than the MCU. The MCU, people just tend to love it. DCEU, people tend to either love it or hate it or feel a lot of different ways about it. Um, so I'm just wondering, let, if you could give me your top three DCEU films before we dive into the story breakdown and understanding the storytelling that's going on, just want to get your opinion so that we can get our opinions out of the way and get further into this whole situation. So what do you think, Caleb? What are your top three DCEU films? Uh, my top three. For, well, first, let me say that I think that the reason DC movies tend to be more controversial than Marvel movies is that Marvel movies are translations, whereas DC movies are adaptations. And those are two very different things. An adaptation messes with structure and story, whereas a translation really just takes the same elements and puts them in a different language. And so Marvel movies tend to be, even when story elements are changed a little bit, they're changed in order to make them work still. Uh, whereas DC tends to be, there tends to be more interpretation mm. of the, and there tends to not necessarily be that same following of major storylines in the actual DC Comics universe. It's more taking elements and putting them together and trying to interpret and adapt. So I think that's where I think that's where the the that's the gap where all the controversy gets to come in is because everyone has a different way. And if there's not if you in the Marvel universe, even if it's not my favorite story, I can think, oh, I see what they're doing. They're doing that story that you know that avengers story or whatever they're updating it and versus with the dcu that doesn't really happen so much and it doesn't happen much in the dc universe to begin with the comics universe those characters are constantly being reinterpreted and relaunched and put into new continuities and anyway i think that's why it happens yeah and I'll also just throw out that I, and you're going to, you're going to find this out as you listen to me uh, for the rest <laughs> of this podcast, but I am a very charitable movie watcher. Mm. And I mean that really in the old sense where mm. charity means love. Mm. I see movie watching in, in many ways as a, a relational act with the creators of the film. It's, it's an act of love and hospitality that. The movies don't just entertain us, but we entertain them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just happened to be reading a book last week. Uh, there was this quote. It's a wonderful thing that here and there in this hard, uncharitable world, there should still be left a few rare souls who think no evil. And I'm certainly not saying that I achieve that, but that is how I tend to go into movies. I want to think no evil. I want to believe all things. Both of those are, are quotes from 1 Corinthians 13, which is mm. what the, the, the author is referring to there, uh, which is a, 
about love, defining love as something that thinks no evil and believes all things. So I try to take a loving approach and be charitable in that classical sense. So I'm just going to throw that out there because in geek culture, that tends to not be the default. <laughs> uh, there tends to, and, and there tends to be critical um, and, and often uh, criticism totally belongs. I'm not yeah. down on criticism, but I, I start charitable and then we'll move critical. Uh, I, I don't think it goes the other way as often. So I'm going to throw that out there because right away, some people are going to hear me start talking and they're, they're going to feel uncomfortable because <laughs> they're like, what? He's just, yeah. so, he's so Pollyannish. Well, can, can I throw something on top of that too? Yes. Um, I like to, to take two separate things um, and make sure that they, they remain separate in my mind as I, as I do reviews. And, it, and it's sort of similar to what you're talking about. There is the, there is my objectivity and then there is my subjectivity. And so there are things that I subjectively love because in my opinion, I just want to see that on the screen. Objectively, I could make an argument against it, but I, I have I, I do feel pretty strongly that in, in our current culture, because nothing is perfect, I can always have a subjectively negative view. There's no perfect film. As close as there are to perfect films, Back to the Future, I think is pretty close to being a perfect film. There are problems with that film and I could objectively criticize it, but I subjectively love it, right? So, so I think that there's an element of that too that, that you're talking about here that's, look, sometimes we just love things, even if they're objectively, sometimes they could be objectively bad but we still love them. And there's no problem with that. But there is a difference between saying this film is perfect versus this film is something I love. Um, and I think that that's a really good, a really, really good point. Yeah, I think there's also, a, I think it also sort of depends if you're looking at something with your storyteller mind or your audience mind. Yes. As an audience, it's more about the subjective. It's... Yep you're the audience and how did, how was your experience? But as a storyteller, there's a certain empathy, I guess. I know mm -hmm. how hard it is to get any story made and out into the world <laughs> and to an audience. And I know how many compromises often have to be made. And I know the competing voices involved and the, budgetary restrictions and all the things that work against the perfection and even the best instincts sometimes of the people telling the story, myself included, when, when my story's got to the world. <laughs> right. So I also just have a very, I should say, probably strong empathetic reaction to, to mm. the fact that anything got made and the grueling process that that involved for everyone <laughs> right. who was part of the process. I, I, I tend to, my heart tends to go there first and then to experience the story. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, given that, what are your top three? <laughs> My top three. Three is Suicide Squad. Two is Wonder Woman. And one is Wonder Woman 84. Whoa! That's surprising. <laughs> that is very surprising. Um, so we're going to get into some of the reasons why. But can you just give me a couple bullet points about what you love about each of those films and why it makes it into your top three? Yes, Suicide Squad has just a certain cast magic, I should mm. I'll say. It's a very charismatic movie because there's very charismatic people playing the roles. Mm. The, the, to me, the 
characterization in that film it just sticks with me. Not in a way that the plot di- didn't stay with me. Mm. And uh, I mean, obviously, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn is a cultural phenomenon, partly for that reason. She's just so fascinating to watch that portrayal of that character, who's always been fascinating, uh, but is just quintessentially embodied, it seems, on screen. Mm. Um, But uh, everyone in every role in that film is just a very charismatic and interesting person. And, uh, you know, Jay Hernandez has been one of my favorite actors for a long time, Mm. very underrated. And I was so glad to see him get, uh, you know, a a large role in a film like this and, and have some meat to chew there's a the the real the scene in the bar the incredible chilling line where harley quinn tells him to own it to own that he killed his family is because we're the bad guys Mm. that's such a rich and deep scene and chilling Mm. and you want a moment of chillingness from a group of villains and (laughs) you often don't get that you know it's often sort of a slapstick sort of thing yeah and so yeah, so that, there's some bullet points about why I love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Wonder Woman, just because I think, I think both the Wonder Woman films just nail the big screen adventure mm. slash myth slash superhero dynamic in a mm. way that the the other films all tend to go towards one of those, and mm. Wonder Woman and and as a character. She, she does this and it works for her and against her Mm. that she falls at this intersection of um, myth and Mm. adventure and superhero storytelling, because sometimes that can make the story feel inconsistent that it has all these different elements and these different themes, Mm. but when they're brought together well and blended, I just love that combination, Mm. you know? And so, that's really the heart behind why I like both of these films. Nice. Well, I also, I would say that's probably a pretty controversial top three given uh, what I know about how people respond. I, my number three is, is, is incredibly controversial because people absolutely hate this film. I really like it, especially the ultimate edition, but I like uh, Batman v Superman. Uh, I think it's actually a really fun film. I think that it's, Trust me, objectively, I can criticize the hell out of that story. Um, but subjectively, I like a lot of what it's attempting to do. I realize that it has a lot of flaws. But I think that the DCEU does something that the MCU rarely does. And that is it presents you with a, a, a moral perspective on things that is not very simplistic. That has lots and lots of different layers to it. Um, which I don't think Marvel is trying to do at all. Marvel is sort of like... Hey, let's teach our 10-year-old kids these things, right? Where I think the DCEU tends to take another deeper cut at some of the morality issues it addresses. And I think BVS does that pretty well, actually. Um, Man of Steel, in my opinion, is a visual masterpiece. And um, if you I think Man of Steel actually has the best trailer of all time. And it's because they they put together some of the most beautiful elements of that film in such a in such a way that it is just gorgeous. So I really like Man of Steel. Um, and the more times I revisit Man of Steel, usually the more I like it. Um, but it's not my number one. My number one is the first Wonder Woman film, 
which I think you can put up against the Dark Knight or Guardians of the Galaxy as being basically the best the genre has to offer, in my opinion. Um, not just subjectively, but objectively, it is a it is a really fantastic film, and I appreciate that Patty Jenkins shook on the. Actually, I appreciate this uh, a lot about most of the DCEU film filmmakers. Um, and I wish I've read a lot about the behind the scenes. I wish there was less studio involvement in these films because every single director that they've chosen and every single director that has made a film for them um, has had some really deep things to say about the world, especially in some of the other films that they've done. So you mentioned Suicide Squad, um, David Ayer. Is it Ayer or Ayers? I don't. I never get this right. Um, but whichever one it is, David Ayer or Ayers uh, has some phenomenal things to say about the world in some of his films. Some very troubling things. He doesn't. He does not avoid the dark and gritty aspects of the human experience, and yet is able to draw out a lot of the joyous uh, camaraderie that the human experience also has. So I just love what he does. So the fact that he's part of this, but I do, I also know that Warner brothers messed with that film a lot and that there are several versions of it out there apparently. Um, so, uh, I think that we probably both have some controversy to our list and that's just inherent <laughs> in the DCEU, which is totally Any, fine. any best of list is going to, is going to have that because there's always someone yeah. you're going to say you're number two or you're number one or you're number three and it's going to be someone else's least favorite <laughs> it's so you know true. it's that's just the way so opinion true. works so yes always controversial yeah well the the next question i want to get into before we start picking apart not picking apart that sounds that sounds super negative before we start digging deeper into the story elements that we're going to dig deeper into and by the way we got a lot of really good questions from the story geeks facebook group so if you're interested in interacting with us and giving us questions even before the show starts you can either do that live or you can go into our story geeks facebook group the link is in the description um you can actually give us questions in advance of these shows which is fantastic uh, but I wanted to touch on this before we get into those questions. You know, you have written a bunch of comic books, um, including, you know, stories for DC, which means that you have a perspective on writing comics and writing comics for DC that most of us do not have. So before we get into any specific questions about Wonder Woman 1984, um, I wanted to get your take on writing DC stories, both from a fan's perspe perspective and from a writer's perspective. What's essential to a DC story in your mind? Ooh, this is <laughs> this is tricky. <laughs> I mean, when you're I mean, when you're working for someone else, part of what you have to learn to do is to find the thing that you love the most in their sandbox. You're mm. playing in someone else's sandbox with someone else's toys, but what what games do you most enjoy with those toys? Sort mm. of thing. You have to. You you are a caretaker. And not a creator, and and that is that is different, and I, I think it it involves a different relationship to the material. So, from a creative standpoint, you're there to care for something that already exists, and you want to do it justice, um, yeah. Justice League, perhaps. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Sorry, I apologize for that incredibly <laughs> bad pun. No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's essential to a DC story is that. Of, I'm going to try to get to this by comparing a Marvel story with a DC story. Oh, okay. I love them both, but yeah. they have different, very different DNA. Mm. And 
part of that is because of the way the universes came to exist. Mm. It was created all at once. And, it, and there was one imagination, Stan Lee, that was involved in all of the books at the same time. So there was, there was a consistency of voice as the universe was created mm -hmm. that DC never had. But also it was being created after superhero was an actual genre. Superheroes had been around for 20 years. And, or was it even more than, you know, a couple decades. And yeah. so Marvel could be created as a fully superhero universe because that genre existed. Mm. DC created that genre in, in, many, in matters, not, uh, you know, because really the first Superman and the first Batman stories were pulp stories. Right. They were so... Detective Comics, you know, is the name right. of uh, is where we get DC, and then DC bought other companies and their comics and their pulp characters and mm. sort of stitched them together so that you get mm. a patchwork universe that was created by different minds at different companies over different over ye different years and in different eras, and so DC just has a very has a it's a collage. Whereas the Marvel universe is a painting and mm. DC was creating things. Whereas the Marvel universe was uh, refining them, I mm. guess. Mm. And so DC, because of that, DC has, I would say that DC stories are more adventurous. Mm. And by that, I, I mean, pioneering as in they pioneered the things that would later make Marvel great or, you know, or many of the elements, the superhero elements and created that yeah. uh, or created a, a widespread version of that genre. But also they tend to be, I think DC stories tend to be adventure stories more than superhero stories. They still mm -hmm. have that little, that pulp DNA. It's an, it's an adventure. It's got that Indiana Jones, you know, Doc Savage sort of mm -hmm. uh, world spanning, universe spanning, um, you know, just very slightly off kilter characters, <laughs> you know, and uh, so I think, and, and, and also the DC universe is multi-genre. The mm. Marvel universe is superhero right. comics. Right. The DC universe is crime comics mm. and flat out adventure comics and mm. science fiction comics and superhero comics and, mythological comics and the list goes on and on and on. So it's DC is a multi-genre universe versus a uh, mono-genre universe. Mm. And so I guess what all of that comes down to is with DC, it's a little more important to pay attention to the DNA of the character that you're working with. Where did that character come from? Batman's DNA is pulp you know, and crime and mystery. And that's why it's very hard to, to make him work to his greatest strength in a space epic story or something, <laughs> you know, you, know you, it, you have to pay more attention to where the characters come from and their histories, because that is gonna give you guidance for the best ways to use them and mm. what, it, what, what a Batman, story is versus a Superman story. I don't think you, I don't think the same thing happens in the Marvel universe. It's all a Marvel story. 
whether it's ah. Spider-Man or Captain America, you know, it's a Marvel story, but in the DC universe, it's a Wonder Woman story. It's a Batman story. It's a Superman story. It's a Justice League story. And even though the Justice League has those three characters in it, it's a different story. Justice League stories are different than, than their individual stories. So I hope that's some sort of, <laughs> some sort of answer. Uh, I would just say pay attention to the DNA. Yeah, no, that's great. I love it. I love it. So let's now with that in mind, let's let's get into uh, Wonder Woman 1984 specifically. And I want to start with the premise. So as as storytellers, one of the things that we look at, and you can call it the premise. I have other books on my <laughs> on my table here that don't call it the premise. They call it something else like themes or or the concept or whatever they want to call it. Right. But I'm going to use the term the premise. We'll borrow that from Leos Agree. Although I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Someone told me I was pronouncing it wrong one time, but I still can't pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> so do what you will with it. Um, because this is a sequel and because I love the first film so much, um, and it's your number two is my number one, um, I want to talk about the two films in conjunction with one another in regards to the premise. So let's just start by defining what we believe the premises of these two films are. So what do you think? What's the premise of the first film? And then what's the premise of, of Wonder Woman 1984? Um. Uh, let's see. It's, I think one way to look at the premise of the first one is mm. this sort of idea that calling is a process, not an event that uh. you discover, you continually throughout your life, discover who you are and what you're meant for. Mm. And that's, that's something that's just, that's a very strong thread in the Wonder Woman story, and it always has been because she has to change, leave her world behind. And mm. so, yeah, so one way of looking at it is that. Mm. Um, but if I, if I was gonna choose premises that sound good because they kind of reflect off of each other for both of them, I would say that the first Wonder Woman film is, uh, the premise is it's a much bigger world than we realize. Mm. And that Wonder Woman 84, the premise is that a broken world is still a beautiful world. Uh, nice. Very nice. And they're both anti-utopian, um, which is it actually kind of goes against some of the superhero grain. <laughs> totally. You know, Black yeah. Panther is utopian fiction. They're, yeah. they're a perfect, you know, a perfect society. Uh, Wonder Woman, but because because Wonder Woman's story focuses on her leaving Utopia mm. behind and coming mm. into a messy world and living in the mess, uh, there's always sort of an anti-Utopian, like we can't perfect the world. It, yeah. And you see that very strongly in, in both of them, but particularly 84. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I talked around it. I don't know if I gave a clear answer there. No, no, I like that. I like that a lot. I, I have a slightly different take on it, but I think that those things are inherent in what what I kind of wrapped around them from a premise standpoint as well. And I think that, so first of all, let me say that I think that both films have some of the best premises in this genre. And, and so the first film in my mind has one of the best premises of a superhero film um, that I have ever really heard. And I would define it as self-sacrificial love is what makes you a hero. And I know that that's like sort of like saying like, well, isn't every superhero movie about that? Maybe, but a lot of films don't actually go so far into 
the concept of you don't get the impression that Batman loves people and it's why he punches them in the face, right? Like that's, that's not necessarily what you would expect to have from a character. You could even see, you know, some of the hope kind of dynamics coming out in Superman. Um, obviously Marvel has some of that going on, but like Wonder Woman, the first film does like specifically tell you the objective of this life, whether you're a superhero or not is actually love and self-sacrificial love is what actually makes you a hero. And so you see that because you see Steve become a hero. He does not have any superpowers whatsoever, but he sacrifices himself. He has sac self-sacrificial love for the rest of the world, really, at that point. Um, and he becomes a hero. And it also, that that impacts Diana in such a way that she's actually able to take on Ares. Um, and so Diana becomes a hero by choosing not to side with Ares, even though she knows the truth about humans, that most of them are dirtbags, right? And she just goes, okay, well, we're just going to move on from that. So I love that premise. Um, I think yeah. that's just a killer premise. I agree. So I, I think that part of why that happens in superhero stories in general mm. is that the the big bang of superheroes which is superman is a moses story and not a christ story yes it is the story about you know someone sent down the river in a basket found raised and uh, and eventually raised to power and different mm. types of power and frees people through through his power yeah. And there is sacrifice in Moses's story, but it's not an inherently sacrificial story. It's a right. uh, rescue story. It's a freedom story. And it's at the very foundation, it's a might makes right story. <laughs> right. You know, the, 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 this idea of the 10 plagues of Egypt is that, well, you know, God is just stronger than Pharaoh. And, and so that is why God wins. And mm -hmm. the Christ story is about the strongest person choosing to sacrifice themselves anyway. And I'm talking about these as archetypes. Right, right. Really, because we see them in both superhero, we see both of them in superhero stories, often in the same film, <laughs> right. particularly in Superman films. These really come up against each other. Yes. Because modern sensibility tends to want the hero to be a hero who sacrifices. Right. And, but that kind of goes against some of the DNA in the superhero, this idea <laughs> of might makes right and of deliverance and yeah. uh, deliverance versus sacrifice. So I, again, like I, I feel very diffuse today, so I hope I'm making sense, but <laughs> no, but I think, I think that is a reason. I think that is the reason that, yeah. that that particular dynamic comes out in films and that superhero films are, and, and comics are always going to bend towards Moses and Mike makes right, because that was, that's, that's what, yeah. where they come from. Yeah. And, but storytelling convention, the power of sacrifice is a very uh, primal, storytelling mm. convention and so we often we want to tell stories about that yes but we're yes. doing it with this i keep coming back to this idea of, of dna when we talk about superheroes in general but uh dc in particular yeah and, and i think it, you can see what you're talking about just from a different angle i think you can see very clearly when you look at what Zack snyder did with man of steel again subjectively one of my favorite films in the genre objectively he's making a very clear tie between modern culture 
and what how modern culture tends to see Jesus Christ. However, as you just stated, that character is not best compared to Jesus Christ as a conquering hero. That doesn't make sense. We don't really see Jesus as a conquering hero in the physical sense. We see him as maybe a conquering hero in the spiritual or metaphysical sense. But um the reason I bring that up is because it's, it would be much better to compare him, even if you're not, even if you're going to say like, well, you know, it's Moses or it's, it's the embodiment of a Messiah and what, and what the, what the Jewish perspective on the Messiah, the Jewish people do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he did not come conquering, right? Like he came conquering spiritually. He did not come conquering physically. And so it much more, it's a, the Superman is much more of a good comparison to, the Messiah and the view of the Messiah as a physical conqueror, as opposed to a spiritual conqueror. So I think that's good. I think it's, it's good to understand where we're being influenced. Now, granted, I love the fact that DC is trying to compare um, these kinds of heroes to these bigger themes that we, we have chosen to believe in, whether it's, you know, the Judeo Christian view of faith or whether it's the, uh, you know, Greek view of faith or the Roman view of faith or whatever. I, I love this kind of aspect of it. Um, I also loved the the Wonder Woman 1984 press, but it took me a little longer to get to an understanding of what that was. And some of the questions that we're going to talk about kind of get into that. I think it's a little bit muddier because of some of what goes on in the film. And we'll talk about all of those things because a lot of the questions from our Facebook group kind of hit on that. Um, but I really did love the premise because it felt to me like it was pursuit of personal desires puts the rest of our community at risk. Um, and it's not even what I loved about the film was it wasn't a lot of people will take that premise and they'll say ruthless pursuit of personal desires puts our community at risk. And that's a different take. It, you can actually just pursue your personal desires in a non ruthless way. And still put your community at risk. And I liked that Wonder Woman actually said that. It actually said like, hey, look, you might not. There, I, obviously, you might say that Max Lord and, in other words, the two villains of the film are, are being a little bit more ruthless in their pursuit of their vision. But you could not say that about Diana. Diana is not being ruthless in any in any sense of in any sense of the word. So I think that that's a really interesting um, premise to play with. Uh, and I thought it was really fun. So. We did get a lot of questions, though, and the reason why I said let's look at the premise first from a storytelling standpoint is because the premise is going to, in my opinion, the premise is going to define how all of the other pieces fit. And so depending on how you see the premise of the film, a lot of people will do this. A lot of people, and this is why I love doing the Story Geeks podcast, it's why I love doing this podcast, is a lot of people will take in the film as, a, as an audience, like we talked about before. They'll take it in as an audience, and I've done this myself a billion times will feel a certain way, and then we'll say, well, clearly what the film was trying to say was X, Y, Z. And why do we tend to say that? Because we tend to reflect our own beliefs into art. We tend to look at a piece of art and go, it speaks to me because it reiterates to me something that I want to believe. Um, as opposed to what is it objectively saying? And then how do I subjectively feel about what it is objectively saying? And of course, the people who make it have their subjective feelings. So it's not always an objective versus subjective thing, but you get where, I, where I'm going with it. Um, so I think the premise is a really good thing to start with because from a writing and storytelling standpoint, um, really everything in stories tends to augment or build upon the premise that the storyteller is playing with. And 
the reason why I love DCEU is because I think that the filmmakers are bringing pretty killer premises to the table. Um, so I got this question. We got this question from three different people, slightly different versions of this question, but they were all asking. So we got it from uh, Justin Weaver, who's a the Story Geeks co-host. Um, Death, my Death of a Bounty Hunter uh, co-writer, Nathan Sheck, asked this. And my wife asked this, um, all in the Facebook group. Were you satisfied with the story mechanics used to explore the premise? We just define the premise in slightly different ways. But if you're if you're aiming for that premise, how how do you think the story mechanics worked? And so let me just list those out, and then I'll get your take on it first, and then I'll give mine. Um, there's a magic stone. Alert. Oh yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. Yeah, well. If you're ever listening to our podcast, it's like a yes. spoiler alert every time. Um, but yeah, you're right. I should have said that up front even even earlier. But that definitely spoiler alert now. Um, so let me just go through the, the the major things here. There's a magical stone that grants wishes. Max Lord then uses his own wish to become the stone. So now he grants wishes. He's like a genie in some in some regards. And then we learn that getting a wish granted has a severe consequence. They call it the monkey's paw, which, of course, will probably come up later in our conversation. And then in the end, the wishes have to be recanted in order to reverse the worldwide destruction. So because there is significant consequences to getting the wish you wanted, there's a negative consequence to the world at large almost. Um, you have to give up something to get something. That results in this, this chaos. Like the world just continues to descend into more and more chaos, all the way up to the president and Russia, and then we're firing nukes. Uh, anyways, so what are your thoughts on this? What are the about, let's talk about the mechanics? There's this premise. We both agree that the premise, however you define it, whether you define it more like you or more like me, is fantastic. And then there are these mechanics, and people seem to be struggling with the mechanics a little bit. So, what are your thoughts on that? To, to me, I was satisfied with the mechanics. Mm. Be these are mechanics that belong in a myth mm. and they belong in a pulp story. Mm. They are not superhero mechanics, which is why I think so many people are struggling uh, mm. because superhero mechanics, um, uh, it needs to, there has to, <laughs> to be honest, there has to be some sort of physical component. Usually, you know, the, the hero has to engage and not just wish. And yeah. um, so the wishing the you know the the idea of wishing as a just a story premise has been around a long time going back uh, even to some of the myths that Wonder Woman is based on and so that that works for me but mm. as as we came across earlier when I was talking about DC I come at these films as Wonder Woman in particular it's a myth and an adventure story not mm. a superhero story so I I. I'm looking for myth and adventure premises, pulp mm. premises, which, which, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for is one of those, <laughs> you know, right. And, right. uh, but it's not so much a superhero, um, premise. And so mm. I think that's, I think that is where, and I don't think either perspective is right or wrong. I think it depends on the, what it is that we love about Wonder Woman. She's yeah. a, multi multi multi-faceted character and yeah. what it is we love about storytelling and what it is we love about movies that's where a lot of subjectivity comes in but if you look at the if you look at it as a myth or as a pulp adventure story mm. uh, i think those mechanics are perfectly natural as a superhero mm. story they feel uh, they might feel a little out of place but 
in the right type of series, <laughs> superhero story, they wouldn't necessarily. It really, because it really depends. Um, and I think part of, part of the problem is that it, it creates an inner conflict versus an outer conflict. Mm. The, mm. the entire film is about, an, is an, it's an inner conflict in each of the characters. It's not really people fighting each other, which, <laughs> which is what su superhero comics are people fighting each other. And so I think that's part of the, part of why it's, it, it's more of a myth, mm. more of an adventure story, less of a superhero story. So one of the things that I, I really enjoy about the podcast, doing this podcast with you, is that, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, is that you tend to approach things from a muse standpoint. I tend to approach things from a mechanic standpoint. And almost instantly, my mind just goes starts going to mechanics. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because um, when I address this question, um, I'm going, I love this premise. But Wonder Woman 1984 didn't make my top three. Why is that, right? And so then I go, then I start to ask myself, what about it was, what about it was not a complete symphony in my ears, right? There was some notes that I feel like I missed somewhere along the line that didn't make it a symphony. Not to say that I didn't enjoy it, right? I, I used to enjoy Blink 182 music, and that is definitely not a symphony. Um, and what here's what I here's what I felt like. I felt like that a premise is something that the entire film is through the character arcs, through the character interactions, through the character motivations, everything is attempting to serve that premise. And I feel like the, the movie realizes what its premise is pretty late in the story. And so there are a couple things where I go, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting from a storytelling perspective. Because there are some things that I think are maybe lacking and some things that come too late. So, for example, one of the things that my wife pointed out was she's like, I would have really liked to have seen Max Lord's flashback scene a lot earlier in the film. Because I might have cared about his, his arc a little bit more had I known what kind of trauma he had had earlier in his life and what had happened to him earlier in his life. I would attack on to that that I would love to see a little bit more of his motivation he sort of has this ruthless desire to be like the most powerful person in the universe <laughs> or in the world, at least. Um, and he's kind of constantly pursuing this, this health problem that he's experiencing as he gains power. But his motivation for doing all of that is a little bit in my mind, it's a little bit muddied by like, well, why are you doing this dude? Like what is, yeah, I know, I know that you have some self-esteem issues, but self esteem and, and that sometimes works for characters, and it sometimes works. I'll give you an example: The Incredibles, which is a superhero story um, for sure, not a pulp story as much. Um, but The Incredibles, when you see Syndrome and you see him being bullied by Mister Incredible, by the way, um, and being seen as less than, and because he's younger, we kind of go along with the premise that someone who's bullied, especially someone who's younger, may want to fight back against the the way that the world works. But I didn't get that as much here, um, and I would have liked to have seen a little more of that. And I bet you there's more of it um, on the on the cutting room floor too. I would imagine because this film seems like it's longer than it than what we see um, in the actual final film. The other thing I, I think that would have been really really good is that I feel like the monkey's paw could have been. Nathan said he felt like 
in the comments that he was making. He said he felt like the filmmakers used the monkey's paw as something that they thought everyone would understand, but that even he feels like is actually a different thing than the than how they were using it in the film. I did not look it up to see what the exact definition of it is. Um, it's a story about a monkey's paw that grants wishes, and uh, it grants three wishes, and it 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 answers the letter of the wish, but not the spirit of the wish, and it goes wronger and wronger, and so the it's a married couple, and the father has to undo the first two wishes mm. with the third wish. So that's that's just what monkey. It's it's a short story called The Monkey's Paw. It's um, is it O. Henry? Uh, I am. I feel bad for not knowing. <laughs> well, as, well, if you, as you look it up, I'll just say by and, W. And w. It, Jacobs. Sorry. Okay, so W. W. Jacobs. And, and by the way, what you just described is not technically, not technically what how the film is using. The definition so even if you do know what it is and know where its origination came from um wonder woman is saying when you wish for something there is a also a negative consequence associated and wait the way you just described the monkey's pop is well, actually when you wish there are unintended consequences to that wish and that's a little bit different than saying no that actually you have to give something up in order to get something right so it's a little bit a little bit different of a premise Justin also mentioned that he was frustrated with the premise because he felt like the movie was suggesting, and by the way, I did not feel this way, but he felt this way. He felt like the movie was suggesting that you can't have what you want and simultaneously do what you're called to. I did not feel like that's what the movie was saying. Justin felt like he was that because what he felt it was like was saying you can't have what you want and then live, fully live into your calling. And so therefore you must, you must sacrifice some of your own uh wants and desires in order to live into your calling and he felt like that was that confused him because he felt like no you don't have to give up some of your wants and desires to to, to see your calling i didn't i saw it more like um I, I felt like it was more like you must sacrifice what you want in order to benefit the greater good at times and that's a slightly it's it's a slightly different take on on that same thing, so um so I think that that could have been maybe a little clearer, but I think it's one of the reasons why I like the premise more than he does because I think he sees the premise a little bit differently than I see it, and that's us bringing our, our own mm -hmm. life experiences into this film. Um, so I think that with a couple of those little minor tweaks, we could have seen that self sacrifice is part of building a stronger world. Um, but I do think it gets a little muddy when they're trying to prove that 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 bigger premise. Um, so I like yes. the way that you view it because I like the way that you say you're you're able to say kind of like, look, this is this is where I'm going to mentally fit this movie in, and it's your favorite one in the DCEU. And so I think that that's really. Um, but my mechanic brain is like, you can't do that, man. You which is, which is it. <laughs> it's totally fine. I should yeah. I should say though, just the the idea that you have to give something up to get something is really built into the monkey's Paul story. The first wish mm. is that they wish for money. The way they mm. get it is their son is killed at work and the insurance payment uh, is what brings them money. And uh, so I'm just going to clarify that it's because I don't want to do that, that story injustice. It's sort of a classic, but, yeah. and even when it happened in the film, I was like, I'm not sure if all these people I'm sitting with in the theater know what monkey's paw is. Right. Um, but 
in the very next sentence, they explain what yeah. a monkey's paw is, or yeah. at least in the Wonder Woman world. So I was like, so it's it was adding a, a little dimension to my understanding of what they're talking about, but I didn't need to know it to, yeah. um, and it and it created what they what was great about it is it created a great shorthand for them to talk about it later. You yeah. know, they could yeah. just say monkey's paw, and that whole idea was encaps encapsulated. You know, so. Yeah, from that. Yeah, from that. So yeah, that's that's good. I think we should compliment that. Um, I think that uh, if they would have, I think it would have worked perfectly. I think if they would have introduced that concept earlier on, and we could have like clearly seen um, that even in the first examples, you know, when you see uh, Kristen Wiig's character Cheetah when she does her first wish, there's not necessarily. I don't remember it at least. I don't remember there being a, an immediate negative consequence. It was sort of just a positive consequence, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so if we had seen it introduced a little bit earlier on with her simpler wish and there had been like a simpler negative consequence, maybe I missed it. Um, that would have been that would have been really interesting, too. Um, yeah, I think it was a slow burn. Yes. Uh, Wonder Woman slowly lost her powers. Yeah. And Cheetah slowly gained her powers, and as she slowly gained them, she slowly lost her humanity. So yeah. I think I think it was always there from the beginning. It's just very hard to tell at the beginning, you know. Um, it's a very good point. Yeah. It's a very good point. So before I jump into my next uh, question, I do want to point out where you can check out Caleb's work and my work. The movie Caleb co-wrote, The Mongolian Connection, is actually available for free on Amazon Prime. Um, you, you might have heard us talk about it because we were able to talk with uh, the director and Caleb, the co-writers. Um, a couple weeks back, actually, more like a month back now. It seems like it was a couple weeks back. Uh, one episode back, but one episode yeah, back, like a month yeah, ago. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so you guys can go uh, listen to that. That was a really, really fun conversation. You can rent it on various platforms. The Mongolian Connection. You can rent that um, on various platforms as well. But if you're an Amazon Prime person, then just you know go check it out. Also, you can check out more of Caleb's stuff on at his website, CalebMonroe.com. So definitely check that out. Um, Death of a Bounty Hunter, this book right here, the book I co-wrote with Nathan Sheck, is now available on Amazon. So just go to Amazon, man. It's like everything's there. Uh, everything is on Amazon and available to you. You can go check that out um, and let us know what you think when you do check it out. So links to those can be found in the description down below. And we do really appreciate your support. And with that, let's jump into the next question. So we got another question from multiple people. And this, this deals with as storytellers, how we incorporate or don't incorporate things in our stories that have cultural implications. So this is going to get more into a philosophy of storytelling than, than it is. We can talk about the mechanics of it, but there's also this, this, this reaction to culture or reaction to society. So the question comes from Rob Sherfield and Bryant Dillon from Fanbase Press. Shout out to those guys. Regarding the plot device that is used to bring Steve Tre Trevor back, namely the spirit of Steve possesses this other dude, this other random dude that Diana meets at a party. And uh, so first, I, the first question I have for you, Caleb, is does that work in the story? The second question, as a writer, how do you tackle an issue like that, especially one that's a hot but button cultural issue? So I say that because the, the basic premise that people have said that they're upset about is that you could accuse Diana of some version of sexual assault because she's using this guy's body as an object because Steve Trevor is possessing him. 
Uh, and there's a question of like, is this guy still in his body? Does he know that this is going on? He He's definitely not doing this willingly, given the fact that uh, his body has been taken over. And so I turn over all of that to you. Do you think it works in this story, Caleb? And then what do we do as writers when we look at cultural issues and we try to make uh, statements about things? How do we incorporate that knowing that we may get some vitriol? Or how do we avoid it knowing that we may have made a mistake in the first point? So what do you think? Oh, boy, this is a complicated one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's why you get to go first. <laughs> yes, no, I'll, I'll probably say something wrong. <laughs> but I I think it's important to have the conversation and, and not draw back necessarily in fear. But I will say that I think it works in the story. Uh, I think I think the Steve's possession of this guy and um, Diana's sexual intimacy with the spirit, but not the body mm. um, are definitely, I think they're wrong. They're transgressive in a negative way. Um, there's violation there. There is very problematic. And, um, but I also think it kind of, it didn't need to be that wrong, but it did need to be wrong um, because she I think more than the fact that she lost her powers, it's that she started to lose her moral center because she wanted Steve back so bad, mm-hmm. so badly that, you know, it was, that was the true loss of her power was her moral center, not her ability to punch cars. And um, I think her desire is um, sort of unordered uh, to use an Augustinian phrase, is he has an <laughs> unordered desire to have Steve back because uh, the implication is that he died an unnatural death before his time, mm-hmm. and that creates that creates a different kind of grief in you than if someone just than if you just outlive someone, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know. And so she's got this sort of unordered desire uh, meshed with grief, and she has done something wrong. She wished for him back, and and that creates more wrong. Um, and I think that if the two of them had been around for longer, it would have become the crisis mm. between them. Yeah. I, what, what, what was happening to his host body would have become the moral crisis that they had to face, mm. the two of them. But because the world was disintegrating around them, it, mm. they didn't quite get to that. <laughs> but yeah. I do think, like I said, I, I think it's definitely wrong. I think that uh, it didn't have to be that particular wrong, but I think that it ne- there needed to be a wrongness to her wish and her desire. Mm. Um, that's part of her her inner conflict. Now, it's also that type of wrong was avoidable. I mean, it's wishes, so you can literally do anything you want, you know. <laughs> right. But what I think this brings up is why this is why I don't think that there is a definitive Wonder Woman story. Mm. Um, because Marston built sexuality and taboo intentionally into the Wonder Woman character. Mm. For him, he built it in there as a tool of liberation and of freedom. Mm. But taboo sexuality is something that we as a culture have a really difficult time (laughs) defining and getting on the same page with. And um, it it can get pretty messy. 
And so the, this, this sort of bondage and this sort of the ideas of sexuality and the ideas of taboo as liberation that are built into the character intentionally by a psychologist who was in a relationship, you know, in a polyamorous relationship. Mm. Um, these are things that we often, um, they're just really hard to tell a story with that doesn't start getting, um, questionable (laughs) and you know it's just it's just it's it's just very difficult and Mm. you know i think that grant morrison does a great job in wonder woman year one of Mm. of summarizing the 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 ethos that i think marston was trying to put into wonder woman which is this idea of loving submission that's the phrase that morrison uses over and over again the idea that the truest use of power is loving submission to someone else's good. Mm. And that's a very heroic thing. Yes. But because, but because Marston physically tied that to bondage and sexuality mm. imagery, um, not all of us have a very healthy relationship with bondage and sexuality mm. and it, and uh, nor necessarily should we. We, not all of us have a healthy history with bondage and sexuality. Right. And so it's very hard to get from that to loving submission, this idea of loving submission and that the greatest use of power is loving submission to someone else's good. And that's what makes Wonder Woman such a tricky character. Yeah. So hard to write. Um, it f- seems simple on the surface, uh, but it is incredibly difficult to pull off be- just because it has that, DNA in it that most characters don't have. And mm-hmm. that DNA was built in psychologically by someone who knew what they were doing. And, <laughs> right. and, um, and so because of all of that, it, I would say, you know, this is just, this comes up in a lot of Wonder Woman stories, not mm-hmm. this particular thing, but some, some sort of sexual transgression often surfaces or implied sexual transgression or metaphorical sexual transgression because it's built into her as a character. And I think part of the problem is that we don't approach telling Wonder Woman stories the same way that we approach telling sexuality stories. Mm. We approach it as superhero stories. But when you introduce might makes right to the idea of loving submission, (laughs) <laughs> it gets real, um, real murky, real fast, and, right. and it re- can get real icky real fast. And <laughs> right. uh, so, I think all of that to say, I think that that's why there's not a definitive one Wonder Woman story. And I think that definitely those are the 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 rocks that that this ship hit. Mm. Um, but that, uh, but I do think that it. I don't think that the film at any point thinks that it's right. I think the idea, the whole idea is that Diana is losing her, her moral center to mm. her unordered desires and, uh, and doing wrong uh, intentionally, yeah. you know? And so, yeah. Okay. It's a very complicated topic. I'll stop there. And yeah, well, first uh, of all, let me compliment your analysis because <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, again, again, um, understanding the backdrop of the stories that are being told can be really important to an understanding of how the stories 
hit us because we may have seen several stories before this that didn't approach it in the same way. And now this hits us weird because we don't see the familiarity there. Um, I think all of that's, that is a really good thing to think about as you think about stories. I also think that as a storyteller, so there's a very quick mechanical fix to this problem. And that is, and you mentioned it, just don't have him possess anybody. <laughs> just just wish him back to life. And he, there he is. His flesh is all there. He's not taking over another person's body. He's just there. That's it. That's a very easy mechanical fix. Now, could you get into a more complex... I don't think this film is trying to get into a more complex gray area. I think you're right by looking deeper into it and saying like, well, the whole thing that Diana is faced with is a gray area that she must get through because it is her own uh, moral desire or perspective or failings that is actually the problem. And so, so in that way, you could argue that in a historically male dominated genre of superhero film and writing, um, comic book writing going back even further, you see like fridging being a thing where the female characters that the male loves are abused or hurt or killed in some way that furthers the male character's arc. You could argue that 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 this is some form of <laughs> some form of that in some in some way, shape, or form. Um, and without going into that and trying to dissect that. I think you're, a, I'm basically just trying to say you're 100% right. I believe that it's really more about what Diana is facing morally in her character than it is about what is happening to this. I think who that with the storyteller thought was, it's just a faceless character. We made him handsome. We made him seem like he could be a little bit sleazy. And so maybe he he would not care if this were happening to his body. Um, if you wanted to make it a real gray area, you could have showcased that he doesn't really care about his body and made him a real dirt bag. It's what they probably would have done in the eighties, right? Like that's what they would have done in the eighties. And we would have all thought like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. Um, but clearly it does matter and that there is greater morality playing. And that that now I think basically what I think is, I think over time culture starts to see different moral failings in, in a new light. And it tends to start to focus its attention on a different kind of moral failing in a different way. The interesting thing about this to me, and I come, I'm, I'm going to come at this from a, a Christ follower's perspective, is that when I look at something like the Bible, let's say, I go, a lot of this stuff has been in there from the very beginning, by the way. So, so in other words, culture sees these things as like, well, we've shifted culture and now for now, therefore, this is bad. But if you were to look at like culture over throughout the decades, throughout the millennia of culture, um, there's always been a problem that culture is focused on because human beings are inherently flawed. And so we just kind of pick and choose over the course of these different centuries of these different decades. We choose the different problem to focus on. Um, and sometimes we solve a problem and then it kind of just goes into the background. And then the next problem is more apparent to us. And so I do think that that's something that that. The reason why I say that is because as a storyteller, I think that you have to go back to, doesn't have to be a Christ follower's perspective. You don't have to use a Bible as a reference, but you do have to say what is morally right and morally wrong in the world, because I am going to deal with these things in this story. And when I deal with them, it's going to look like I'm endorsing it, or it's going to look like I'm saying it's bad. And so you have to bring that to the table as a writer and say to yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it? So I'll give you a, an example of how, how I've used it. 
in Death of a Bounty Hunter, we use racial slurs. Now, in the history of writing, that has off and on become a huge problem. A lot of people will say, don't read Mark Twain's works because uh, he uses racial slurs. We don't use the same ones he uses, but it doesn't matter. They're all bad. Um, and my point is this. I believe pretty firmly that Mark Twain was using racial slurs to showcase the negative impact that they have on the world and that people should not use them. Um, could that work be interpreted in another way? Sure. I think that that interpretation would be wrong based on what the story is ultimately trying to tell you, um, in my opinion. But I also think that as I use them, I have to now think in, in terms of, well, first of all, do I think a racial slur is bad? Do I think what versions of sexuality are good or bad? Um, and then I have to work those things out in the story that I'm telling. And so as, as an audience, I think it's it's good because people are starting to pick up on the subtle things that are in stories. Then they go, wait a minute, that's, isn't that morally wrong? Whereas in the past, we may have just said like, who cares? I'm just going to watch the movie and treat it as a movie. So I like that. But what it does is it puts more pressure on the storyteller to be like, well, what does this actually mean? Um, and I've had this discussion with a lot of um, a lot of other Christians who will read my book and go, wow, you, lose, you use a lot of bad language, not just the racial, actually, no offense to these to the other Christians who I've talked about this with, but a lot of times they're not really upset with the racial slurs as much as they are with the fact that I use off-color language in this book. Um, and I, my, my thing is always like, well, yeah, I use extreme violence too, but if you're trying to think that I'm saying that either of these things is, yeah, you should go forth and do them. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that, man. Like, there's a negative consequence when these things are employed. And so I think that um, I think that what you're suggesting is, look, there was a negative consequence to Wonder Woman. And yeah, this this no name character who is possessed. First of all, I think all of us would say possession of things. If we assume we can possess other people, that's bad because that's slavery. Um that's a that's just automatically negative. But what you're saying is it wasn't intended to the story wasn't intended to look at that from that character's perspective. It was intended to look at it from Diana's perspective and how that activity, instead of that loving submission, it was acceptance of the possession that was negative. Um, how that was affecting her because it was literally destroying her. Um, I think that that's actually the deeper way that it was meant. And so I do think you should you should as a as a storyteller play with these issues, but it also helps to be hyper aware of what this is causing in your audience's brain, so that you can either showcase it in a negative light and not treat it as a well at least Steve's back and who cares, but rather treat it as a oh wow Steve's back, but the way he's back is really bad and we see why it's really bad and then we address why it's really bad later on in the film and so i think that that's <laughs> it is a tricky subject it's, but i think yeah and i think you bring up an interesting point and that is that possession stories are rape stories mm. and you know it's in the horror genre that's often um put forth, you know, like it's just out there that there it's a violation. Um, right. But in the comedy genre, like freaky Friday, they, <laughs> it, 
the rape is tap danced around, <laughs> right. um, you know, and, uh, you know, Freaky, which came mm. out in October, I thought did a, sort of an interesting, it was trying to bring those two worlds together yeah. as a teenage girl and an adult male psychopath switch bodies. Right. And so there is definitely a violation. They're both violated by that uh, in different ways. Mm. Um, but both of them are, both the characters are focused on things outside of their bodies, mm. which also enables them to be themselves and to have mm. agency. Mm. Um, you know, in his case, it's murder, but, uh, <laughs> you know, right. so, you know, it's, but possession stories are rape stories. And we do, we just like, if you're a writer and you're telling a story that involves possession, just know you're telling a rape story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are stories that can be told. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I think a lot of times people don't want to tell a rape story and don't realize that they are. Um, yeah. I don't think that necessarily, you know, I don't want to, what I don't want to assign is, any, I don't know where the intentionality was on any of this. And I don't know why right. any of these storytelling choices were made. I, this wouldn't have even occurred to me as a storyteller. I, I would have just brought him back because it's a wish. Uh, <laughs> right. you know, so many other things like a giant wall appearing out of nowhere. So why couldn't a person, right. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do this. Right. And so there was, I know there was a train of thought that got there yeah. and I'm not entirely sure what it is. And I don't want to speculate what it is. Um, uh, I will say that it does, going back to the idea that I said, you know, this is a story about inner conflict versus outer conflict. Mm. The, what the thing does is it, it makes her relationship inner as well because no mm. one else can see him. Mm. Um, no one else knows he's there or even if they see him, they don't truly see him, you know? Yeah. So it puts, it puts all of this stuff inside of her and inside of this man's body. And, um, you know, that's certainly a, uh, you know, that goes with some of the themes of the film, but I don't yeah. know if it goes, I don't know if it's just because those themes are around it, you know, yeah. and, and I certainly don't want to say that it's intentional, but yeah, it's, it's definitely problematic. And I think that we don't like it when someone that we want to see as a hero does something really, really wrong. Um, yeah. But, but it's also really a powerful tool. Heroes do real life heroes and fictional heroes can do something that's really, really wrong. And yeah. uh, if we feel good about it, that's a problem. Yes. <laughs> if we feel disturbed by it, uh, then I think it's a, we're at least having the correct moral <laughs> reaction. I guess. Yeah. And this next, this is a good transition into the next question because I would argue that if we had seen this possession as something that Diana was viewing as possession and not just viewing as Steve being back. And again, it might, there might be several scenes on the cutting room floor that showcase how she's struggling with this aspect of sometimes she sees it's Steve and sometimes she sees it's the other guy. And she's like, Whoa, this is really freaking me out. And this is a very difficult thing for me to deal with. Um, I think that that may have solved a lot of these problems. It doesn't make, it doesn't make the lead character sinless. What it does is it means that the lead character is more like us, right? It, the, the lead character is 
is is doing things in his or her life, in this case, Diana's life, that she goes, oh, wait a minute. I don't know that I'm doing this the right way. I may be, I may be hurting someone else. Now, this is a very extreme version of that, but I may be hurting someone else by doing this thing. Um, and I think that that would have been really powerful. And I think that I, I like that you have taken it and said, look, that's actually what's going on. It's just that they weren't really specific about this particular thing. Um, because I think that that's a really good way to view it. And it, I think the the thing I would say to everyone out there listening is these things should disturb you and you should think to yourself, what's the better way? Um, and by the way, this is just my, I, 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 this is, you probably don't want to be preached to today. And I apologize for doing this to you, but this is why I am a Christ follower because people are in need of salvation. <laughs> and when, because people are not perfect, and because you cannot justify yourself in any sort of behavior, because if you try to, you will fail because you are an imperfect human. Uh, where will you get your salvation from? We just heard recently there's a there's a news story about another uh, Christian leader who has these giant moral failings in in his past. And I go, yeah, what did I mean? Obviously, we would hope that the spirit would work through us, that we would that we would transform a lot of our behavior. But guess what? Every human being, even if they have been saved spiritually through Christ, is still a dirtbag, even their thoughts or their actions in some way, shape, or form, because every human is. And that's just another reiteration of why we need something beyond ourselves. And so I like uh, the, the superhero genre oftentimes encourages us to be the Moses, to improve our, to justify ourselves by being a better person. But I like it even better and this is why i like a lot of the wonder woman films when when we go actually everybody's imperfect that's just what we have to there's no way of getting to to perfection you can't keep working your way you can work your way to a better place but you can't work your way to perfection and what are you going to do with that and so i i, I kind of like that so i apologize for the preachiness but i yeah. like that aspect of it i well and you know here's something i this is a half-formed thought, so I, I'm not sure. I love half-formed thought. I'm not going to yeah, yeah, stand yeah. by it tomorrow, but just to throw this out to people who are storytellers mm. and thinking about the stories that you tell, uh, if you really dig into it, uh, the the wishing mechanic of the story the entire mechanic of that is a violation of consent. Uh, <laughs> you know, people are asking for one thing and they are not getting what they're, you know, <laughs> their consent is being violated. They did, they would not have consented if they understood, you know? Right. Right. And so then, then you get into all sorts of, um, uh, but what's in, you know, but some, some violations of consent are more acceptable to us as a culture mm. or, or just considered less egregious. Mm. And, and there are some violations of consent that probably are less egregious, you know? Sure. Um, and so when you're telling a story, just try, do your best to think about um, 
the true mechanics of your story and not the cultural acceptances of the mechanics of your story. Mm. Uh, you, you made an interesting comment earlier that in the eighties, they probably would have done this or, you know, <laughs> right. or, you know, like this, this might not even, this would not have been met with this reaction. Right. You know, in the nineties. Right. And, but was that right or wrong? You know, like culture, what, culture was, was blind to that dynamic or, or, you know, just not looking very closely at it, but yep. that doesn't mean that the dynamic was any less wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when you're telling a story, try to think about what you might be putting into your story that perhaps you're just culturally blind to right now, mm -hmm. but in a decade or two, people will consider horribly wrong, um, yeah, you know, exactly. morally wrong as, you know, some of that is changing conventions, but I also just think some of that is us um, growing as a species that we, yeah. that, you know, new things are brought to light and we're like, oh my gosh, like how did we let that go on so long? And, <laughs> right. you know, and it just, and that keeps happening. And, you know, there's, there's a, we have a limited capacity to do this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just what are, what's, what are we taking as culturally acceptable that shouldn't be? in putting into our stories. Think about that as a storyteller. Yeah, this this is um it's it's most obvious I think too when you look at whenever you hear someone say, "Oh man, I just really miss miss the good old days," right? And you hear a lot of times you'll hear people say that who will say, "Wow, I just really think that we had a better perspective." And you hear this a lot in terms of uh America, uh, the United States, and you'll hear it said politically is that wow we should you go back to when america was a really great place right and this is not a political statement so so don't follow that line of thinking the problem is who on whose behalf are you thinking that because if you say well the 50s was a really great decade i wish we could go back that people were people were more moral we didn't see all this immorality like television had actually like you know the uh, the FCC was actually you know not letting certain things on television and blah blah. blah. Married couples didn't sleep in the same bed. <laughs> right, right, right. They said, yeah, but how did how did we pe treat people of color in the fifties? Not real well. We had a bad track record. So you can go. You can basically say you can always wish back to something that where the world was a little better. You can always wish for the world to be a little better in another way. But guess what's happening? the world is probably failing in a different way because that's the way it works. We are not perfect. And so therefore we will pick our definition culture. Culture will always pick its definition of what right and wrong is. You as a storyteller have to go, yeah, what is my definition of right or wrong? Where am I getting that definition from? And how does it then appear in my stories? And guess what? If it's just your personal take, uh, then it might change because the world is going to change. And if it comes from another place, if it comes from, you know, some holy book that you uh, respect, culture might actually hate that perspective at certain points in time as well. So you may never be 100% right. And you have to do the best job that you can possibly do in your stories with what you're given. So I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I just, I keep thinking more about this as, as I, I was just doing a lot of research in culture uh, a mm. couple of months ago because I am the working culture director at the church where I work in. <laughs> so, 
So I've been thinking about this in particular lately is that sociologists emphasize, and I think they're, they're correct, that we are more cultural artifacts than cultural agent. We are, our culture shapes us far more than we shape it. Mm. And, but because we're a hyper individualistic culture, we don't tend to believe that. You know, we believe, no, I can change culture or, or even just this idea that I'm separate from culture. I'm looking at culture uh, and interacting with culture. You're not, you're, you're drowning in culture. And, um, you know, the, the David Foster Wallace at the beginning of his little speech, this is water, which has been collected as a book. He tells the parable, two fish are swimming along. They pass an older fish. The older fish says, how's the water? And then they keep going. And then one of the fish turns to the other one and says, what's water? And that's, <laughs> that's culture. You know, we are, we are breathing it and it, we don't understand how pervasive our culture is and how much a product of our culture we are. Yeah. But as a culture maker, as a professional culture maker, as a storyteller, yeah, that's just something that you really need to think about because just, just understanding that, means that you're going to look for the ways culture is acting on you and you're not going to have, because if your default position is um, I'm acting on culture, you're going to miss a lot of those things that are culturally acceptable now, but, but are, shouldn't be, you know, you're going to, you're just going to, you're going to be blind to a lot of stuff. And the truth is you will still be blind, but at least you will be looking for the, your blind spots. If you're, if you're aware that culture shapes you more than you shape culture and culture defines you more than you will define culture. Um, so uh, I'm just, again, talking that, that applies to anyone, but storytellers in particular, just you need to know and wrestle with that reality. Yeah. And I, and, and as somebody who has wrestled with that in the past, it's really fascinating because, you know, you can start, you will start to, the first process is to deconstruct your own worldview and a lot of people do that and stop and they go well i guess nothing is attainable and i can't really believe in anything because anything i deconstruct it's very difficult to rebuild back i would encourage people to deconstruct and then reconstruct because without the reconstruction you can only tell a dystopian nightmare story (laughs) you need to be able to say what are the other things that i'm going to build back into my worldview my perspective so that we can so that i can showcase what uh, what a moral perspective may look like. So anyways, I think that that's, that that's really cool. Um, and we got it. We got a comment and you just responded to the comment, which is awesome. Um, but uh, CF oh, interesting. Says, My response says it's from the reclamation society. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. You, you're part of the reclamation society. That's, that works. Um, that is why people cheat with portal fantasy to bring the outsider. So the fantasy culture can be explained. And as you said, Great example. Um, so I want to transition into this next question. We have two questions left. We're already we're already way over time. How are you on time? Are you, you good okay. on time? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Wonder Woman 80, 1984 uses two different villains, Max Lord and Cheetah. And in thinking about that, I realized that a ton of the comic book superhero stories, especially DC, they use two villains. So uh, the first film had the Germans, um, and there was actually two, the, the lady with the... Uh, with the face mask and also I think his name was like Ludenberg or something like that. He was also like seen as a villain, but then you also had Ares. Um, the dark Knight had Joker and two face. 
Captain America Civil War, this is a kind of a bad example, but you had like the villain hero dynamic between Cap and Tony and you had Zemo. But that's very, it's actually, I, I could not find as many examples of two bad guys on the Marvel side. Um, Batman v Superman has Luther and Doomsday. So the question for storytellers is, there's two villains in this story. Does that tend to work well for stories? And how do you think it worked here in 1984? So a quick shout out to Tanya Simmerer in the Story Geeks Facebook group for prompting that question. But I want to turn that question over to you. Um, how do you think it works here? And how should storytellers kind of consider this two villain dynamic? I will, I'll start by saying, I actually don't think it's a two villain dynamic. It's a two antagonist mm. dynamic. I don't think either okay. of these characters are villains. Mm. Um, uh, I think villainy implies a certain evil intent. Mm. Um, and uh, ultimately, they're victims of their desires as mm. much as other people are victims of their desires. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and and they spread it, and they're hurt, and they hurt others. And but what's different about this film from the first Wonder Woman film is that um, Wonder Woman is actively trying to save both of them. Mm. She's not fighting them; she's fighting for them in all the physical confrontations she's fighting for them and you don't get that with the germans in world war one you and and that's this is part of why i don't like world war one and world war two stories uh, mm. um we i think we've given ourselves permission to dehumanize a mm. to create a completely dehuman villain that's also human um and we tell that story to ourselves over and over and over again which is why we still have Nazis in our culture because we just keep telling ourselves that story and keep telling mm. ourselves that story. And, um, and so the, the Germans are this sort of dehumanized faceless and you actually fight them. Mm. You fight the Germans. Um, right. And, but she's fighting for Maxwell and Lord and, and Cheetah. And, and that is actually why this is higher. Um, mm. and, and why I like this film better is because mm. all the uses of physical force she is fighting for someone, not against, mm. not against, you know, mm. um, she has to go against people, you know, as part of the going for, um, and, and there's some amazing action scenes and set pieces and, and it's, 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 it's in very beautiful and poetic in some places and, <laughs> and, and a little brutal in others, but, um, Yes. So uh, that makes it not quite a straight villain story in the same way that you are, that you get in, in a lot of superhero dynamics. Um, and that keeps it from being a pure might makes right story, mm. um, which again is part of the reason Wonder Woman can do that is she's only a third superhero. <laughs> she's also, you know, myth and, and, and pulp adventurer. And um, so but I think ultimately the reason to do that as a storyteller is that it simply gives you more combinations mm. uh, of conflict. There are more dynamics at play, which creates more, uh, you know, creates more conflict or more possibilities of conflict. It just gives sure. you more options as a storyteller. Mm. Um, it's the difference between playing a game of chess and imagining what a game of chess would be like if there was three players. Mm. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a game of chess has some set pieces at work. It's it's actually, um, I think you can actually learn about a lot about storytelling by studying chess, mm. uh, because chess is two two groups of characters in in conflict. 
And you see that in most movies, particularly superhero movies. You have these two groups of characters, often evenly, ma evenly matched in some way, mm -hmm. in conflict. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in chess. And you, I think you can actually learn some interesting storytelling techniques by watching the dynamics of chess. But mm -hmm. imagine a triangular board with three players. Mm -hmm. um, and those, those already near infinite dynamics um, become a, <laughs> a much bigger infant infinity. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of why you see it is if you want, um, uh, I, I just think it's practical from stories. It just gives you so many more options. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, a couple more comments from CF. Uh, villains should be foils for each other when you have multiple ones. I think it works well if they have diverging goals interactions. The trope of the hero that tries to save everyone, though oftentimes is the best uh, stories are where that goes bad. I'd recommend Drew Hayes' Villains Code if you want to look at the trope in superhero fiction. Um, yeah, and, and you can look at that, I think, uh, with Thanos, for example, as the guy who thinks he's saving the universe, but in reality is being very damaging to it. Um, I think there's, there's to respond to your comment, um, Caleb, I think you and I probably have very different definitions of what it means to be a villain. Um, because I, uh, I do think that these two are villains because I'm not sure that the motivation is part of what makes a villain. Um, but I don't think, I think the behavior is more of what makes a villain than the motivations are. And I think Thanos is a good example of that. Um, however, I love the concept of the chessboard and how writers can learn from their, the definitions of chess of playing between two people or three people. I think that the, the danger of using more characters, and I think this is very true of the DCEU when I talk about them using so many villains all the time, I think sometimes... I think the DC the DCEU I think is guilty of this more so than Marvel is is that they're actually trying to sell the story based on the characters who are in the story almost as opposed to selling the story for the story's worth and the fact that these characters will be included in helping tell that story. And what I mean by that is it feels like you could actually have this film without Cheetah in it at all. You didn't need Cheetah almost. There's, 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 and all the characters in my mind in the best kinds of stories, especially movies, because you don't have as much time as you might in like a novel, are again augmenting the central premise. And it's hard to augment the central premise if you get too divergent with characters who are not dealing with the same central issue. Now, in this case, they are all sort of dealing with the same issue in one way or another. And by the way, the, the way that you end up dealing with that central issue is usually what makes you a hero or a villain. Um, like, for example, if, if, if two characters are struggling with the same thing at the beginning of a story, oftentimes the villain will double down while the hero changes their perspective and goes like kind of the more holistic way where the villain just goes, no, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm doing this. Um, and so I do think that from a storytelling perspective, um, I do think that stories require a certain amount of focus and it's hard if you're if you were to say whose story is this that's the best question you can possibly ask for a lot of stories because when you look at infinity war it's thanos's story they're, they're not trying to spend there are other subplots that are doing other subplotty things but that's thanos's story um in this case i would go well it i think actually it's maxwell lord's ultimate story in fact, if he doesn't make the decision he makes, it's you could argue that, again, without a fight against him, 
this story doesn't resolve itself. I love that, but also I think this story spends a lot of time going. I think it's also Wonder Woman's story, and also we have Cheetah, and I think it's also her story. And I think that that's that that for me gets a little bit more convoluted, and I would like them to be a little bit more all on the same page and trying to prove out the premise. And uh, I think it would have been a little bit easier for me to take in if I had gotten this is the central character, this is who we are worried about, and all these other characters are going to augment that character's. Arc. Yeah, I have a I have a question for you, and then, yeah. a, th- and then a thought. Yes. The question is: so you said that you consider them villains because of the actions they take. Mm-hmm. Um, but Maxwell Lord's final action yeah. uh, is, in one sense, literally undoes all of his previous. <laughs> so does that mean he's still a villain, or is he just a villain for part of the film? Uh, I, I I just I you know I want to hear a little more. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. So I do think that he has, uh, in the end, he is turned into something, someone who is not a villain anymore. Probably not, not the same case with Cheetah, because there's no evidence that Cheetah actually recants her wish. Right? I don't think so. It's not necessarily. It's it's gray. I think in that regard. But he definitely does. He definitely goes back on his selfish desires. Right? He then says, "Oh, I've been doing all this stuff for selfish reasons, and I should not have done that for selfish reasons. I should." So yeah, he doesn't end as a as a. You wouldn't say he ends as a hero because he guys kind of just. He doesn't ever get back to, an even playing field by doing something incredibly self sacrificial. He just sort of reverses the thing that he's already done. Um, and so I don't know if I'd call him a hero, but they definitely have him on an arc where he realizes that he is a villain, as opposed to Thanos, who who dies believing that his way was the right way to do it, right? Um, even even Killmonger, Killmonger dies going, look, man, let me see the sunset one last time because I'm not gonna say I'm sorry for any of the things that I believe or any of the things that I've done. Um, so I, I would have said a lot of times how the character ends the story is how you would classify them um they make a selfless decision that's that's kind of in my my basic premise is if you if you're going along and you make selfless decisions you're turning towards the hero's path if you go along and you make selfish decisions you're choosing the villain's path this movie muddies that in the end and along the way you see wonder woman kind of making some selfish choices not recanting her wish as early as she could have but uh, ultimately, I do think that Maxwell Lord is pursuing selfishness for 90% of the movie, if not 95. Wonder Woman, uh, after realizing what's going on, then changes her perspective and starts choosing selfless things. Um, and then in the end, everyone's a hero because everyone recants their wish, right? So, so that does muddy the waters a little bit. But I do think um, most of the movie, they're spent as villains, basically. Yeah, I, um, you know, and, and and CF, you know, just brings up the point that Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor using that man's body is a villain choice. Um, you yes, know, but, it is. Uh, so you have to, you know, so you're, again, you're weighing the villain versus the hero choices. Yep. Uh, and every character ideally should have both at some point. Correct. You don't want someone who's always selfless or always selfish. You want... They have to have an arc. That's dehumanizing. That's dehumanizing yeah, exactly. either way. It's dehumanizing to always be selfless. It's dehumanizing to be... Um, to always be selfish. Um, so, but my thought, yeah. and as you're talking, I actually had another one. So I'm going to show you. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, the second thought is that uh, you really almost have a four character film 
Mm. Because Barbara and Cheetah are not really the same character. She trades herself for power. And she is no longer herself. She has traded away her joy and her warmth. Which means she no longer can make the heroic choice. Because the part of her her that can make the heroic choice, she gave away. Which is why I think she didn't recant at the end. Because I don't think she can. The, right. the, the, the part of her that would understand recanting is gone. Yeah. And um, so in that sense, she becomes a different person with different choices, you know, and different. So you almost have a four. <laughs> you can almost look at it as a four character movie. Um, but, but but my my first thought was. um uh, I love musicals and uh, you know, I love musicals from the thirties, the forties, the fifties. And I I was recently watching Broadway melody of 1939, um, Mm. which has my two favorite tap dancers of all time, Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. Uh, Mm. I think Powell is Astaire's uh, greatest dance partner, um, Mm. even though Mm. uh, Rogers is certainly no slouch, but I just think that Powell is, was a once, once Mm. in a, in a art form. Uh, artist when it comes to dancing, just like a stair was. And, but as I was watching it and, and I, you know, I love these things. It really hammered home to me how simple the story was. Uh, um, and, and, and as I've watched other musicals since then, I, it, I keep, I'm like, oh, wow, that, these are really simple, straightforward stories mm. because they have to create room for the musical numbers. <laughs> so right. a 90 right. minute movie that's musical number with musical numbers is really an hour of story. It's yeah. not an hour and a half of story, exactly. you know, and, um, and the best use the musical numbers as, uh, you know, as part of the story, but, um, but songs are not efficient ways to move story. They're, they're certainly more poetic ways, but yeah. they're not efficient. And so I think that, that's another math that you have to understand as a writer is that the more characters you add or musical numbers or action scenes, which are basically musical numbers um, uh, where the sort of the plot pauses for a minute and there's lots of beautiful, there's lots of visuals. And then, (laughs) and then then we get back to the nitty gritty of plot Um, sex scenes as well, sex scenes, musical Mm -hmm. numbers and, and action scenes all, play very similar roles as far as, as what is happening to your narrative there. Great point. Um, but every character you add, the simpler your story will need to be. Mm. Because, or at least the simpler the arc each of them will need. Because if it takes two hours to really portray a complex arc in someone in like say Michael Clayton, um, but if you're giving that character half the time, cause you're, you've got a villain who's getting half the time, then yep. that, Arc has to be simpler, and yeah. it, when you add a third, and when you add a fourth, and when you add a fifth, um, and uh, again, that's just something you need to be aware of as a storyteller: that your desire for rich characters and your desire for variety of characters, um, there is a little bit of a natural and um, conflict between those. Yes, um, absolutely, especially in time or page count or word count limited stories. Yep. Yeah. And I would compliment the MCU in that regard because the MCU basically said, first of all, we're going to take like B level characters instead of A level characters like Superman. I just mean popularity wise. 
Um, and the villains were terrible on a lot of the MCU films in the beginning. And who cared, right? None of us cared because it was like, this film is not about the villain. This film, the, the villain ser serves as either a protagonist for the negative thing and the hero serves as an antagonist trying to stop them or, you know, what, however vice versa you want to play that. And I think that that worked really, really well. And it helped, it helped us believe those characters, want to see those characters in more complex stories. Um, but I think the MCU does that really well is that the MCU knows it's this character story. This is the story we're telling, we're going after it. Um, we should do an entire episode on heroes and villains. Um, I've done a lot of actually thinking on the topic and, Obviously, you're going to have me think in one very specific way, and that is anybody who only exists in a story as a hero or a villain is too simplistic of a character, and you shouldn't be, you probably shouldn't be writing that character to begin with. Because, I will like, accept it in a musical, though. Well, there are certain stories you would definitely <laughs> accept it in, right? Like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's just fine. Like, just, just let it be what it is. Um, but to your point about us seeing the world, tribalism means that we see our own tribe as having the morally superior viewpoint and we see other tribes as having the morally inferior viewpoint. And therefore, since we are superior to them, we can do whatever we want to them. That's what racism is. That's what Nazism is. That's what a lot of times nationalism is, if you're not careful. Um, That's what confirmation bias is. It's what confirmation bias. This is this is we cannot see the other tribe as being less than. We can see them as being different than, and then trying to understand where do they have things that are better than what we have. Where do we have things? I'm not asking you to see everyone as as equally the same. That's not true either. Um, but I so I, so I, I think that the more complex we want our stories to be, as the more morally interesting we want our stories to be we cannot just say this is a perfect character and he will move through the story as a perfect character and he will never be tempted by anything because he is so heroic he would never do anything selfish selfish and then vice versa if our villains are only just pure evil it just makes for a, a much less interesting story so <laughs> you can do it but maybe i won't be watching it as much <laughs> um so but let's end on a positive note i would love to end on a positive note because i really enjoy the dceu obviously you do as well this is your favorite film um there are some fantastic aspects to this film so my question is what are the storytelling elements what are some of the storytelling elements that we see here in wonder woman 1984 that you think really really work uh, I mean, I think I've, I've I've brought a lot of them up over time, but I think that uh, the idea that a I I like the anti-utopian uh, idea mm. that that a, a broken world is still a beautiful world that just that that to me is a um, that is a mature theme to tackle. Mm. Uh, in, in in what is not always a mature genre or medium, um, and uh, I really like the the fact, like I said, that Wonder Woman is fighting for and not against. That mm. that is what really makes it dear to my heart. Um, mm. th this the idea of fighting for and not against, mm. and um, you know the and the fact that it is not a might makes right story mm. 
like all of these are things that I, I just really admire about it. And that's, mm. that's what raises it in my estimation um, uh, as far as my ranking of DC movies. I would say it does those things really well. Uh, I think that um, it has a good sense of tragedy, mm. which superhero films do not often have. But you, you, there is there is genuine tragedy. You know, one of the biggest ones is the idea that by wishing for what she wishes, Barbara can no longer recant what she wished for, and you know things like that. Mm. Um, that's very tragic. Mm. And uh, tragedy in superhero films is often very surfacey. Yes. Um, uh, but just as showcased the, by the. <laughs> giant beam of light coming down and and is the world's gonna die and there's all this swirling material as such a trope for so long it's like that's it's like okay yeah that's obviously tragic right like like it's so blatant yeah so um yeah i i think i think all of that comes creates some sort of alchemy about why it really hit with me what about mm. you yeah i think that that's that all those things are really 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 great um for me, I love the premise. I'll go back to that. I love the fact that we are... I think that any... Again, any storyteller that says, look, I'm going to go out with a premise that says it's going to test a certain thing about the world. What are we testing about the world? We are testing that we could pursue what we want. And even though we can see the world falling apart around us, it's okay because we want... We, we're getting what we want, right? Um, what it's basically doing is it's testing the premise that we should view ourselves as an individualistic society and that if we were to carry that out to the nth degree, even in light of other people losing, it's okay because we got what we wanted. And I think it's testing that premise and saying like that premise is totally bogus. And if we had a hero put into a place where even their most... Uh, their most desired thing can be given to them, can be gifted to them. They would have to realize, they would be the first one to realize. A true hero would be the first one to realize, oh, this is this is not good. Um, and actually, it's even worse for Diana because by accepting to keep her power, she could just become human like anybody else and be like, well, I have Steve, so it doesn't matter. What she has to actually choose is that I have to choose because I am one of you know one of the only obviously there's the other dc heroes but i'm in this situation i'm one of the only super powered people that can actually help humanity meaning i have to give up of my own desire and then i have to go give up of my own physicality because i'm the only one that can do it and so even though i might not even want this thing as much as i want the other thing i have to give it up i think that's a really great message i actually think that the the fact that uh max lord has to has to to realize what he realizes is actually really important too, and and go back on what he was doing, and 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 a lot of these people see that because I think what it does is, is it suggests to us as a culture that we should not want our thing if it comes at the expense of everybody else's thing, um, and that is a, a message that I think is really great to infuse into culture, kind of again and again and again, because I think a lot of us can get that wrong, especially in the Western world where we've been told so many times that what you want uh, is what you should get. And so you, you deserve it almost. Um, just look at our advertising and how many people say you deserve, do you really deserve it? I don't know. Um, I also think that, uh, 
I thought that 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 actually this is something that um I was watching I started watching the mall scene and my first response to the mall scene was like oh the mall scene is kind of cheesy and my wife was sitting there and she turned to me and she goes oh this is kind of cool it really feels like an 80s movie and I went oh of course that's of course what they were trying to do and it changed my whole entire perspective of the mall scene and now I love it because I go yeah it's it feels like I've, I'm watching Stranger Things season three where they're in the mall. Like it's 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 not trying to be like uh, it's not trying to be avant-garde filmmaking. It's trying to be like what was it like when we watched movies in the '80s? <laughs> and that was that's kind of what it was like. It kind of felt like those things. Um, the villains were kind of these really cheesy guys who were like, oh, "I'm going to grab a kid." You know, I, I think that that's I think that that's kind of cool. I think that that's kind of fun. I, th- I think that the way that they did that was was um, was really good. And then I, I the, the last thing I would compliment this film on is that first of all I love Patty Jenkins for taking the risks that she takes. In Wonder Woman one, having Gal Gadot say "I do these things for love" could have been the cheesiest moment in the history of of uh, of superhero films, against maybe some of the things we saw in the seventies and eighties in superhero films. Um, but uh, but it wasn't. It was really meaningful. Um, and I think that so Patty Jenkins is is saying I'm going to take the genre and I'm going to dig into the genre as deep as I can. I think and I think she's doing a really good job of that. So I love that. I love the fact that Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot. If you would have told me Gal Gadot's going to be well, this is what I felt like when they told when they said Gal Gadot's going to be Wonder Woman. I'm like, wow, <laughs> she's so skinny and 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 I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean she's petite. How is she going to play this super powered character? Gal Gadot is the best choice for Wonder Woman that they ever could have had. She's amazing in the role. Um, and I really enjoyed Pedro Pascal in this. I've enjoyed him in everything, actually. But I really enjoyed him in this as well because what Patty Jenkins did on the set, and I'm going to give the credit to her because I think that this is what a director has to do. A director has to get everybody, even if they don't believe in the script, even if they don't like some of the ways that the film is is being set up from a from a visual perspective, even if they don't understand the character motivations, if they buy into the fact that this character is important and this character needs to, you need to believe in the character you're playing. Um, that's a huge thing. And Patty Jenkins definitely got her cast to do that because every single one of them appears to deeply believe in the character they're playing. And that's phenomenal. And so that's yeah. the that's the last thing I would. That's I would that's talk. one thing that I was. You got as you were talking. It occurred to me one other thing that I really liked about the film that I thought it did really well was casting. You got yeah. four really good performances, and yeah. there's there is a alchemy to that to to actors being great, but you also need they need great material to work with and they need great direction. Yeah. And um, it's really hard to sort of tell where the DNA of those are, but when all the performances in a film are good, um, that does that that speaks really well of the director and, and, yeah. and writer. Um, and, you know, like you said, that, that one line could have been super cheesy. And, but a lot of that is, whether it's cheesy or not, is how it's delivered, you know? Exactly. And, um, so, yeah, I, I thought there was four really great performances and uh, that was another strength of the film. Absolutely. 
Well, that's it. We almost went two hours, man. This is the <laughs> longest show yet. Just the two of us almost going two hours. But that is it for today's show. Don't forget to check out Death of a Bounty Hunter, uh, Nathan and I's novel. And also check out The Mongolian Connection, the movie that Caleb co-wrote. Um, they're both available on Amazon. So you can go search for Death of a Bounty Hunter or The Mongolian Connection. You can find those. Uh, if you do check those out, let us know what you think. We're always trying to do this storytelling thing. We're always trying to do it a little better. <laughs> so um, feedback is good is good in that regard as well. Um, also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe either here on YouTube. You can join the Story Geeks Facebook group. If you don't actually don't post the, the, this to uh, to that Facebook group, but I do. You can like the Reclamation Society page. There's so many places where you can find our content. Um, you can find it on there. Um, and then also, if you subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast channel, which is available basically on all the podcast providers out there, um, just pick the one you prefer. You can subscribe to that. This show will be appearing on that podcast channel as well. Um, any last thoughts, Caleb? Nope. <laughs> I, th I think, I think I'm, I'm drained. Of, of we thought. covered it. We covered it all. Yeah. So thanks for listening. And as always, question everything and always seek the truth. And I just want to give a special thanks to our monthly supporters. Here are some of the awesome supporters who support us at $5 a month or more every month over on Patreon. Adam Vargas, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lejeau, who, by the way, hosted a uh, best Christmas movie comedy nerd fight a couple weeks ago on the Story Geeks channel, which is awesome. Um, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Mo. We appreciate all of our supporters, even those we haven't mentioned by name. Please consider supporting us, even if it's only a couple of dollars a month. Learn more at patreon.com slash thestorygeeks. And thanks to CF today for, for bringing the comments. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's where we'll end it. Happy Come New back Year. In a, yeah, Happy New Year. Come back in a couple weeks. We're not sure what we're talking about yet, but it will be something interesting. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to throw it out. I think we should talk about um, uh, what we can learn from the past as in 2020 and talk about what it means to, um, to set writing goals. Oh, yeah, there uh, you go. As we are here at the beginning of the year. Perfect. What did we learn from the past? And being 2020 and what can we do uh, in terms of setting writing goals for 2021 I dig it two weeks from today 9.30 a.m. Pacific time join us then we'll talk to you guys later alright bye bye